Today we're going to start one of two messages on do we have free will? Do we have free will? And here's the reason I, I want to preach this message because as as I my, my goal is to equip the body for the work of ministry, and my goal is um, to help you develop in that. And so what I do as a pastor is I try to know my people and hear them and talk to them and, and kind of know and. Um, and so basically, in between exposition messages, I'll do topical things like the family by the book that was really needed, I think, because just of all the different conversations. And then I want to do one on free will because I there's this thing that I keep having people say to me and at pretty large level is, what about man's free will? What about man's free will? So that tells me that let's let's take a look at this topic. Now, just so you understand This topic of free will has received a lot of debate in the history of Christianity, okay? A lot of debate from ancient uh, church fathers and uh, theologians like Pelagius, who I'll probably talk a little bit about next week, uh, who really promoted this idea of man's really free will to guys like Erasmus and Luther and John Calvin and Augustine, who were not so big on the autonomous idea of man's free will. And man operates completely in this kind of autonomous fashion. So I want to take a look at this from Scripture. I want to do this in two weeks, and my hope is this. I want to take the same passage relating to Joseph's life, and I want to look at it this week from the sovereignty of God, then next week from really the position of man's responsibility. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to do. And hopefully this helps to bring some clarity. I will tell you, this is probably one of the most difficult, most debated subject matters uh, in all of Scripture. And so, um, you know, uh, won't we need the grace of God for this one? Um, My my prayer is I don't confuse us. But in the end, there is a bigness of God that grows in our souls as a result of this. That we see God as big and us as small, and we just go running to him. Now, here's the deal. When we people say this idea of man has free will, what typically people are saying is they believe that man has this autonomous, determining kind of will, free will. That's what people typically mean when they say it, even in our culture, even in a place like America, who we really believe in freedom. It even rings louder, although it's been around for years, okay? Even Back in the 400 A.D., as they were the 3 and 400 A.D.s, as uh, ancient church fathers like Erasmus and Augustine were debating this, this idea of free will has been around. But I would say in American culture, this idea of free will has kind of gone up even several more levels. We enjoy freedom, and we think that we think of this idea that the worst thing that God could ever do would impede the free, autonomous will of man. I hear people say all the time, well, God doesn't want robots. That's not what God wants. First off, I just want to say, there were no robots in Scripture, so I don't think that was an idea they were dealing with. But number two is, yeah, nowhere in Scripture is it presented as if man is completely not responsible for the decisions he makes. That's the difference between a robot and us. A robot's not responsible for the decisions a robot makes. A robot doesn't make decisions. A robot um, is only, do, only does what a robot is computed to do. Man does have a, I, I will sometimes say, he has a responsible will. He has some type of will. I'm 
never been comfortable with saying man has a free will that is completely autonomous and he does whatever he wants to. I cannot say that if God is sovereign. That word sovereign means all power. So I can't say that man has autonomous, independent, determining free will because that would put, that would, that would lessen who the sovereign God is. I see too much in scripture where God is moving things for his glory and the fame of his name. And some people may go like, who is God to even do such a thing like that? Where does he get off making such a big deal of himself? Well, let's just suppose that you invented a cure for cancer. Now, no, all the conspiracy theorists will probably go, it already is there, Nick. But let's just suppose it's not there and that no one knows it and that someone has really got it and the medical community and all the conspiracy theorists out there believe this person and it's good. Now, if that person who invented a like the surefire, like go, go swing through Walgreens and pick up this over-the-counter medicine, swallow the pill, and you're gone of cancer, that person would probably receive some kind of Nobel Prize, right? And they would be applauded and wrote about, and we would brag about their name. And if someone were to come up and go, guys, why are you, why are you praising the name of this person? Why are you making such a big deal about this person who created this one pill that you can swing by Walgreens and get and cancer can be gone? Why are you doing that? All of us would go like, why wouldn't we do that? This person deserves that kind of acclaim and praise because this is a huge, huge deal, unless you're a doctor who treats cancer, okay? Like, this is a huge deal for humanity. You would brag about it. You would go, they're so worthy of all the acclaim and praise. When we come to this idea of free will, we have to be mainly brought to the sovereignty of God. And, and this is the deal with God. God is worthy of glory and praise in such a way. He is actually worthy. He is the one that has done something bigger than created the cure of cancer uh, uh, he's actually he's actually solved the biggest issue that man's ever had, and that is his cosmic rebellion against the holy God. Like God has solved that, so he is absolutely worthy to receive all praise and all glory. It is not sinful. It's sinful for us to make much of ourselves, but it's not sinful for God to make much of Himself. It is completely worthy and appropriate. So when we come to this idea of free will, I want you to understand that. This week, I want to really look at this idea of free will in relation to God's sovereignty. I want you to have a big view of him and how that impacts your life. Then next week, I want to kind of look at it from man's perspective, kind of what he's responsible. So this week, it's God's sovereignty. Next week, it's the responsibility that God has and that will that God gives him. Now, once again, I'm telling you, I I don't like using the word free will. Don't worry, I'm not creating some... Uh, you know, free will police, that you can't use that word. I'm just saying for this idea of autonomous, deterministic free will, I, I'm not usually big on that word. Now, I have had some people and go, what about, is, is, you know, I've had some people go, what about, wait, wait a minute, man's fallen, and in his fallenness, he's dead to sin and his trespasses and sin. Could I say that man has, uh, you know, some kind of like freedom to sin? I mean, like his nature is sinful, and as an unbelieving, ungodly man, that he, he has some kind of like freedom to sin. And I would go, if that's what you want to look at free will and say, then I can go along with that in the sense that, of course, a fallen man would give into his evilness of his soul. And of course, he would pick evil things. I would also say, in retrospect, 
that that also for those of us redeemed, those of us that have the Holy Spirit, those of us that have experienced the grace of God through the work of Jesus, we actually are free to be righteous. We are free to choose God. We are free to choose what's good. So if you want to, there's some people that will say, wait a minute, as a Christian, don't we have free will to obey God? Does God ever want us to disobey him? I would go, no, he doesn't. So if you want to look at it in that aspect and use that vernacular and go, I have as a Christian, free will to obey God, I could say yes and amen to that. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go, man, that's bad. Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be so against that. But what I am against is this idea that man is so free will, autonomous, independent of God. He does what he wants and God has no ruling of this. That's, that's a much harder thing to swallow. So that's laying my cards on the table. Now, I've had some people say, well, hey, listen, Nick, here's what I believe. This is, and I don't agree with this, but this is what a lot of people will say. They'll go, I see the word foreknowledge and predestination in the Bible. And here's what I believe, Nick. I believe that God foreknows the decisions that man is going to make. And that as God foreknows the decisions that man's going to make, then God predetermines what's going to happen in his life based on the what man is going to do, because God, because God's sovereign, and part of His sovereignty is His omniscience, His all-knowingness, and so God knows the future, and so since God knows the future, He knows the free will He's given man in the future, and then God basically makes His predetermined election and His predeterminedness based off that. Now that is what many people believe, actually, um, and some would say, "Do you believe that?" And my hearty answer is no. Don't believe that. That would be putting man in the place of exaltation. That would be putting man in this position where man is the one that's basically controlling the narrative. And God is simply this passive kind of idea where God's just basically looking on in the future and going, Oh, what is Nick going to do? Okay, I'll kind of adjust myself accordingly to Nick. That strips God of his sovereignty. He is either sovereign or he's not. Now that nowhere releases man from the personal moral responsibility. Man's not a machine. Machines don't have personal moral responsibility. Man does all through scripture. That's why I say if you want to use the idea of free will in relation to nature, we can have that conversation. By the way, I do anticipate this sermon creating more questions sometimes and, and more robust discussions off the stage and I am heartily so excited to have those conversations. Um, I want to have those. But that's not how I see it. God's foreknowledge is God's predetermination. He predetermines, he elects. And so I don't, see a, I, I don't see that you can slice it out that way. He is completely sovereign. And so I'm comfortable with that. So today, here's what I want to do. When we look at this idea of free will, I don't want to look at it today in the... Uh, I want to look at it in the aspect of how sovereign God is. And as we look at what, what um, responsible will God gives us, and we'll look at that more next week, I want to look at a big view of God. Because if you're going to approach this subject of free will, you must first look at it from God's perspective. And you must first look at it from God's sovereignty. Now, when I say God's sovereignty, I mean his all power. He has all power. And part of God's all-powerness is, like, you can believe that God's sovereign, but if you don't believe he's good in that sovereignty, then you're going to have a problem. And if you don't believe God, all of God's character is a part of that sovereignty, you're going to have a problem. So I believe in God's sovereignty, but I also believe that he is good. 
And I'm not talking about 1% good. God is all sovereign. God is all good. God, God's not 20% sovereign and 10% good and 10% wise. God is all wise. He is all sovereign. He is all unchangeable. This is what God is. So I already come with that idea big in our eyes. Now let's do this. I want to look at a couple of scriptures. Go to Psalm chapter 139. Psalm chapter 139. We're going to go through a diff- couple different scriptures. Let's start off with Psalm 139. Psalm 139 and verse 13 through 18. This is a familiar portion, but I want to point out this idea that God is sovereign over our lives. Completely sovereign. This does not release man of the moral responsibility he has. He is held accountable for that. That does not negate that. We'll talk more about that at length next week. We'll look at our fallen, sinful natures and how that works. But I do want to point out that God is overall sovereign over our whole entire life. You're not the one calling the shots. It's not you, God, looking down the line and going, oh, what is Nick going to do? Let me adjust my plans according to what Nick's free will does. Not true. Take a look here what David has to say. I love this. Verse 13 of Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Just a side note. Do you see that even God considers it a life in the womb? He says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. He's just once again, as we're in, you know, this month is sanctity of life. That God is the one, you know, people say like, when does life start at the moment of conception? That is a life. That is a life. Verse 16. This is what I love. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Look at that. He says that the Lord is sovereign. He has written. He has decided. Now, nowhere does it negate man's own moral, personal responsibility. Nowhere does it negate that in Christ you are free to obey God. But what he is saying is it's been formed. It's been done. You've wrote it down. Now, I don't know about you, but... This doesn't seem to indicate to me that God is maneuvering himself according to some future plan of what man might or might not do. God has already decided it. Now watch what happens. When you have a fully orbed, robust, biblical understanding of God's sovereignty, look what happens in verse 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. How vast. I've heard people talk, when we talk about this idea of free will, I've seen some people get discouraged and get down. And then I've seen some people like just exalt God. I mean, try to explain it away, like, uh, like lose your soul. Try to, explain all, try to explain all this, lose your mind. I mean, what's been great is every time I think about this subject matter and I try to tame the untamable God, all I am done is brought to worship. I'm brought to, once again, this idea that I am nothing and you are everything. You've given me categories of how to understand the, more, the responsibility of my decisions, but yet 
You are over, you are over all this whole entire thing, moving and maneuvering all according to your will, while at the same time holding me responsible. How am how is all this working together? And then I'll try to calculate it. I'll try to calculate how God works. And all it does in the end is just bring me back to worship him and saying, You are God and I am not, and I'm so thankful of this. That even means when bad things happen in life that I don't like, I can get on my knees and I can say what Job does. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I think one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. By the way, if you want a great song to worship with, if it's like, man, ah, man, like life is tough. Uh, Lauren Chandler years ago wrote a song called Though He Slay Me, Yet I Will Worship. Her uh, husband had gotten brain cancer, Matt Chandler, and she wrote this song during that season. Um, I want to say uh, Mercy Me has a great song, The Hurt and the Healer Collide. Great song. But here's what David does. He sees the sovereignty of God. God's, God is completely in control of everything in his life, not negating his personal responsibility. And he says, the vast is the sum of them. Oh, the thoughts of God. He says, if I would count them, they are more than the sand have you ever tried to count sand? I mean, go on vacation this next year and get about a mile stretch of sand and try to count it all. Not going to happen. There, I would awake. I am still with you. So David is in awe when he thinks about God's sovereignty, his plan for his life, that God has laid out his life. It doesn't, and, and that God is over it. David isn't brought to this place of just saying like, well, that's discouraging to me because I, you know, a man should have a bigger role. He's like, no, I, I, am, I am brought to worship. I'll do this. Go over to Job chapter 12. Here's what I love about talking about the sovereignty of God. It brings you to worship, but also reminds you of this God that you're worshiping. We want to domesticate this God that we serve so bad. We want to tame the untamable God. Now, when I say untamable, I'm not saying that he is haphazard or wild or does things capriciously. But what I am saying is, we have this penchant that we want to figure him out completely so we can be satisfied. Not going to happen. Now, if you're reading with us um, in our one-year chronology reading, we're now in the book of Job. Uh, we've read the book of Genesis. And, um, and if you're kind of like, man, I don't understand the book of Job, guess what? For every, every day, I upload on YouTube a recording, and I'll just walk through the book of Job. I do a a, a more insight video where I'm going in detail. Then I do a highlight video that's about five to ten minutes. It just covers the scriptures readings for that day. But Job's a really interesting book. Here's the basic synopsis. Job's friends are terrible friends. I hope I don't ever have friends like Job's friends, okay? Terrible friends. And they're trying to comfort Job, but all they've got are their kind of ideas of man. They, they have really little idea of God's sovereignty. They have little idea of the nuances of this untamable God. In their mind, here's how Job's friends think. If you do bad, then bad happens to you immediately. If you do good, then good happens to you immediately. Now, there is some truth that for man's sin, he will be judged, and there is blessings in obedience. You reap what you sow. So there is an element that his friends are speaking some really right and true things. But there's also an element where his friends are way off base because his friends think they have computed the sovereign God. They think they've figured him out. And so their continual comfort to Job is, Job, I know you say you didn't sin for you to lose your family, your wealth, your health, and for your wife to, your wife to say, curse God and die. 
Job keeps telling his friends, I haven't done anything to deserve, like there's nothing wrong in my life that I can see that this should have come on me. Now, he doesn't negate that he has original sin. He doesn't, you see that in another chapter, he actually talks about that. But, but Job is just telling his friends, nothing has happened. His friends come in and go, Job, we see that you've lost your 10 kids, all your wealth and your health. Job, there's no way. You sinned in some egregious way. You're hiding it. What is it? What did you do? You're getting what you deserve. If you do wrong, then immediately God's judgment comes. If you do right, then God's blessings. Job, you were the most blessed man of the East because you were walking with God. Job, you must have done something wrong that that now God has cursed you. Job, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And that's kind of like the back and forth of what happens. Job, Job defending himself and lamenting to God for all this. Now, here's what's interesting. I like chapter 12 of Job. And if you'll go to verse 13, here's what I love. They have promoted their system of how life works. They think they figured God out. You know what's really awesome about growing in the Lord? The more I get to know this book, I figure God out even less. <laughs> you know? And what a great reason to praise him. What a great reason to bow before him. Like, I can't figure him out completely. Oh, I don't doubt his goodness, but I can't figure out everything that he's doing. I love what Job says to them. He's trying to set them straight. They've just given, once again, their simple, shallow wisdom. And then he says in verse 13, he kind of talks about God's sovereignty. And he talks about basically how untamable it is. You can't, you, like well, the way God works, it's not always one plus one equals two. That's not how God's sovereign hand always works. It's not that predictable. Look in, this, now this is poetic language, but I want you to catch this idea, the untamable sovereign God. He says in verse 13, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. And Job's telling them, guys, you don't have counsel and understanding. God does. Your counsel's terrible, guys. Verse 14. He who tears down, talking about God, who tears down, none can rebuild. If God destroys it, no, no one can rebuild it. But if God shuts a man in, none can open it. So he's just saying, look, look at the extremes of God here. Like you try to categorize, you try to say, If you do good, then immediately good happens. If you do bad, immediately bad happens in your life. And Job is saying that's not so measurable with God's sovereignty. He's not tameable like that. He tears down, none can rebuild. He shuts in, none can open. Verse 15, if he withholds the waters, if there's a a drought, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. He said there's floods and then there's drought. All from the same hand of God. You can't predict him, guys. He is completely untameable. You're trying to tame the untamable. Does this remind you of what they said of Aslan? Is he safe? No, but he's what? But he's good. If he withholds the waters, I'm sorry, go to verse 16. With him is strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. Wow. You know what's interesting when you read the book of Job? Satan is God's Satan. Let that sink in. Satan is God's Satan. Meaning that all that Satan does is over the purview of God's sovereignty. God controls everything that Satan is allowed to do. And nay, when you read chapter 1 and 2 of Job, here's what you find. It's not Satan bringing up Job before the throne. Who's the one that actually brought Job up? It was God. Satan is a pawn is a pawn to do God's bidding. Job's friends are God's friends. He's the one maneuvering all. I mean, 
even the terrible comfort Job's friends bring to Job, in the end, we see that this actually causes Job to rehearse accurate theology of God, even causes some personal repentance about the sovereignty of God. You see, by the very end of Job, you see that this actually, their lack of true comfort actually brings Job to lament better and actually run towards the Lord. Why? You can't tame this God. He's so untamable. The way he works and does things. So he says the deceived and the deceiver are his. They're his. Verse 17. He leads counselors away stripped. You would think that a counselor would kind of have a sound mind. He's like, nope, he'll strip them. They'll, they'll say foolish things. And judges, he makes fools. Judges are supposed to be the wisest of the land. He, he confounds even judges. He looses the bonds of kings. He sets kings free, and then he binds a waistcloth on their hips, basically saying he chains them up, he locks them up, he raises and brings down kings. Verse 19, he leads priests away stripped. They're supposed to be the most solid, but even they lose their mind. And he overthrows the mighty, the strongest warrior. He deprives of speech those who are trusted, those who, 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 who everybody trusts their words. He deprives them of speech. He can take away their voice, and he takes away the discernment of the elders. You can't. Job is telling his accusers, you think you figured out God? You think you know how the sovereign works? Not tameable, guys. He pours contempt on princes, and he looses the belt of the strong. Verse 22, he uncovers the depths of darkness and brings them darkness to light. He makes nations great, and then he destroys them. He enlarges nations, and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them Wonder and trackless waste. Ever read about Nebuchadnezzar? They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Job's point to his friends is, you think you figured out God, and you haven't. This God is wholly other. This is why, like taking a look at does man have free will, we must first take a big look at is God sovereign. And when we can view him as sovereign, then we can start to filter down and have a, a better purview of discussing this idea of free will. If God is sovereign, then man does not have this kind of free will that he is autonomous and does whatever he wants. If, you, if we take an honest reading of Scripture, there's no way we can come to those conclusions. Now, we'll discuss this more next week, but this does not release man from any personal responsibility. That, that does not mean that man is not held liable for what he does. And we'll look next week. Some of that holds in tract with the nature that he has. Now, here's what I want to do. Go over to Genesis chapter 50. Actually, go to Genesis 45, then we'll look at Genesis chapter 50. I want to take this story of the life of Joseph. I want to look at it this week from the position of God's sovereignty. And then next week, I want to look at it from the position of man's responsibility. And then, then hopefully you'll have a, a, as, as biblical and debatable of a view as free will as you can. Here's what I love about this story. Here's Joseph. And by the way, if, you, if you're in the one-year chronology reading with us, I mean, this is something that we've covered. Um, now, here's the deal. When you look at Joseph's life, let me just give you a couple timelines. Joseph, okay? By the way, if you're ever discouraged in life, you ever feel like the world is against you or you ever feel like god is against you please read the life of joseph and, and here's what you're going to see here's a man who goes through really really terrible things 
really looks like God has just cursed him. But Job comes out of it better and not bitter because he believes in a sovereign God. In fact, you find in this story that Joseph is forgiving of his brothers way before his brothers even admit what they've done. I mean, Job, or, I'm sorry, Joseph already extends heart forgiveness towards his brothers ahead of time because he believed in a sovereign God. I mean, like, we should forgive people because we've been forgiven of more. There's no sin that anybody can do against you that, that actually necessitates you can't forgive them. I mean, you, we've been forgiven by more through a holy God. But if we find a hard time forgiving people, not only are we not applying the work of the gospel, but I would say also we actually don't believe that God's sovereign. When you start to understand that God is sovereign, even when hurtful things happen in life, you can say, I don't, I can't trace your hand in this, but I trust your heart, God. And like Joseph forgave his brothers because Joseph knew that God had a plan. Like, I'm going to be okay. When you look at the story of Joseph, I want you to know a couple things. Like, when everything bad that happens to him, he knows this. God has given him, gave him a dream in Genesis 37. That basically in that dream, it said that his father and his brothers were going to be in some position of submission to him. I don't think here like, well, if Lord would give me a dream, then I would believe he's sovereign. Uh, God has given you all you need right here in the word. But, but where we're at in the text, that's what God has given him. Number two, God has given the family of Abraham, passed down from Isaac to Jacob, to the 12 sons of Israel, to Joseph, is this Abrahamic promise that God's going to build a great nation. So Joseph, I mean, there's, Joseph knows that he's going to be used in some sovereign way to that this dream that God has given, it's, it's going to be used in some sovereign way. And God is going to protect his seed, going to protect his promise. So here's what happens. Joseph, at 17, his brothers sell him into slavery into Egypt. From 17 to 28, we're, we're, we're really not sure. He, he gets sold to Potiphar in his house, and he serves in Potiphar's house well. Does nothing but everything right. He gets framed for rape by Potiphar's wife. Un unjust. He did nothing but righteous, and then he gets sold out. So get this. At 17, his brothers sell him into slavery because he was obeying his father. Then, then somewhere between 17 and 28, he gets framed for rape, then put in prison doing nothing wrong. While he's in prison at age 28, he interprets a dream, two dreams, but we'll just talk about one for the cupbearer to the king. And he basically tells the cupbearer, hey, uh, like, man, when, when, when you get back restored to Pharaoh, I want you to remember me and tell Pharaoh about me. I'm here unjustly. The cupbearer forgets about Joseph for two years. But at just the right time, Pharaoh has a dream, and that dream basically is there's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, and, and, and the, no one can interpret this dream. So the cupbearer remembers Joseph interpreted his dream years before and recalls at just God's sovereign timing. Joseph gets called up from prison, and then he gets, he gets restored back. Uh, he, gets, he gets basically in, interprets a dream. Pharaoh puts him over all the food supplies, all the rations for seven years. He saves it all up so they can make it through seven years of famine. And in that seven years of famine, two years into it, we see that, and it was probably maybe at one and a half years to two years into it, we find that his brothers are coming to him because they need sustenance. The, the messianic promise from Abraham, the children of Israel, from Jacob, they, they're not going to make it. This famine is going to wipe them out. Now, here's the interesting thing. 
his brothers are now in chapter 45, had just come on the scene. And now Joseph is letting his brothers know, you're, I'm the, the guy that you've been coming to for food. I've been testing your repentance. Like, I, I'm Joseph. Now come right here to Genesis 45 and look in verse 4. And Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 45 verse 4, By the way, if you're the brothers that sold him into slavery, and you're now coming to the second most powerful man in Egypt, you're probably going to think he's going to be pretty bitter towards you, right? But Joseph had an unflinching trust in God's sovereignty. He knew the untamable God. He knew that God's steps were ordered for him. Watch what happens. And Joseph said to his brothers, come near, please. And they came and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. By the way, he is not taking away their personal responsibility. They are responsible for what they did. Okay? So we'll talk more about that next week. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Ah. <laughs> Look at that. He's like, you did wrong. But, but hey, you know how I made it through this? Growing better, not bitter? Because God... God did this. He is sovereignly in control, the untamable God. He's the one that has brought this about. Look in verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, they are held a, a responsible for what they have done, but overarching this whole thing is God's sovereign hand. That's why when people say, do you believe in free will, this kind of free will that man determines, man is autonomous, and I would go, no, that doesn't line up with Scripture. Now, does man have a moral responsibility? Yes. Is he held accountable from his perspective for what he knows? Yes. Or is man even in Christ free to obey God? Yes. But... I don't see this idea of Job, I'm sorry, of Joseph. The Jays, it's just so easy to get them together, aren't they? I don't see Joseph making a big deal about man here. Who's he really making a big deal about here? It's the Lord, the Lord's sovereign plan. To look at this idea of free will, you can only look at it if you look at it from the top down. Here's what most people try to do. They try to look at it only from the bottom up. And here's what they're more concerned with. God would never, ever impede my free will. God would never get in the way of my sovereignty. Does he hear? Does, he, does God maneuver things according to his plan? I look in Genesis chapter 50. Now, at this point, some would go, oh, that, fine, Nick, then I'll just do whatever. I'll just do nothing because God's just so sovereign, he'll just make it happen. Well, then you have a really bad understanding of God's sovereignty. Because nowhere does God's sovereignty ever promote this idea of laziness, of haphazardness, of just daring God to do anything. It always, I mean, that's why we're commanded over and over with imperatives of obedience. God wants to use us. He uses us as a part of that process. Now, here's what's interesting. So, clearly, he's not harboring anything towards his brothers. Now, his brothers think, well, Job, you're only like this because our dad's alive. But now, Daddy Jacob dies. They're all in Egypt now. Daddy Jacob dies. And his brothers think Joseph's going to get revenge on us. Now look what happens. Go to verse 15. And Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. This is Genesis 50, verse 
15. And Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Isn't this interesting? Joseph had forgiven them a long time ago because he served a sovereign God. wonder who's the one really struggling with the sovereignty of God here. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because he did evil to you. Just a side note. Joseph had clearly already forgiven them. If someone has told you they forgive you and they are treating you as forgiven and they're not replaying what you've done, then you need to stop second-guessing their forgiveness. If they've told you and they've showed you, it's about time that you put that away and know that they've forgiven you. If God forgives you and they've forgiven you, then it's, it's probably time to put that behind. Now, I'm not telling you, oh, Nick, that means that person needs to just forgive themselves, just so you hear me, and please hear this online. No such thing in Scripture as forgiving self, okay? Concept doesn't exist. When a person says, I can't forgive myself, what they're typically saying is, I know I'm not a different person for the sins that I've, been, that I've done. I haven't changed yet. I have found that when people actually are experiencing the change of the Holy Spirit and the change of their life, they don't have those feelings of, I can't forgive myself. But Joseph has forgiven his brothers. His brothers just can't reconcile it. They say, and now please forgive the transgressions of your servants of God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph's making much of God. For as you meant evil against me, personal responsibility does not negate it, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice that part of God, him believing in God's sovereignty is he believes in all of God's character. He believes that God is good. Not saying that every situation, jo- Joseph doesn't have to say, oh, that was good that I was sold into slavery. Oh, that was good that I was framed for rape. Oh, that was good that I was left for an extra two years in prison. He's not saying that situation is good. What he's saying is God's sovereign plan, his powerful, all-wise, all-unchangeable plan is good. Is good. That's what he's saying. And that actually puts him in a position where he grows better and not bitter about life. The promotion you got passed over at work, if you believe God is sovereign over that, you'll grow better and not bitter. The, the people in your life that have hurt you, that have offended you, have hurt the relationship, when you can look at it through the lens of not only Christ's forgiveness, but God's sovereign plan for your life, you grow bitter and, not, and you grow better and not bitter. You know, it's interesting. God, here's why I love, I love when, when Job talks about the untamable God. Okay, so if you know anything about, if you've been reading, if you've been doing the one-year chronology reading with us, you, you discover that God makes a promise to Abraham. And Abraham, from Abraham, is supposed to come a nation. And that nation is supposed to get land and, and in Canaan, the promised land. And that nation is supposed to grow and multiply as a nation. And from that nation is going to come the Messiah. But even if you read back in Genesis 15, when God does the official covenant-cutting ceremony, he basically tells Abraham in this covenant, I'm going to take you out to a foreign land. He basically tells them, you're going to be going down to Egypt for 400 plus years. Now, here's the interesting thing in the sovereignty of God. I'm so glad that God is sovereign, and I'm so glad that I'm not sovereign. I'm I'm glad that I don't have a complete autonomous free will. 
I would would mess everything up. Here's how it is. If I'm Abraham, I'm Isaac, and I'm Jacob, if I'm God, I I would refuse to never leave that land of promise. This is the land of promise, land of Canaan. They were already there. Now, it's interesting when you read the text, they have the land of promise, but really the only thing they ever have until until after the exodus is they basically have a burial plot. That's all they've got in the promised land. They don't even have, they live in tents still. All they have is a burial plot. Now, take that somewhere in kind of how we're to look at life. Hebrews says that they were looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. All they really had in the promised land until the, after the exodus was just a burial plot. But I digress. Here's what's interesting. God's sovereignty over the situation. If I'm the patriarchs in Genesis, here's what I think. God said, you got land grow into a people, grow into a nation. Messiah's going to come from here. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I would have said, God, the only way this works is we have to stay in this land and multiply out. Right? Doesn't that seem like the only way that could work? But yet God, in his sovereign plan, totally not doing what man would decide that seems rational, the untamable God, he goes, no, 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 no. This is how it's going to work out. I'm going to hold... Joseph's brothers responsible for what they've done, but yet they're going to sell him into Egypt. Joseph's going to go through these terrible things so that he can be promoted, so that he can save up uh, seven years of plenty, so that during the seven years of famine, you know, right before the second year, in the second year, his brothers are going to come. And then in the end, they're all going to come down to Egypt. I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? If God had promised the promised land to 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 Abraham and his descendants, it would have seemed unfaithful for Jacob to even leave. In the end, Jacob and the whole family leaves and goes down to Egypt to survive out the famine. And then guess what happens? They get stuck there. And they get stuck there because life is so good. And even when they go down to Egypt, they're given the best land in Egypt. And what's interesting is they're shepherd, shep, uh, sheep herders, right? They're shepherds. Well, the Egyptians don't like shepherds. So even Israel has to come down to Egypt, live in the land of Goshen, separate from the Egyptians. The Egyptians kind of segregate from the Israelites. And now, because they're segregated, they start to, over the next 400 years, bloom and blossom. And because they bloom and blossom and grow into millions, actually, a later pharaoh, hundreds of years later, gets kind of nervous about the number of these Israelites that keep multiplying in our land. Here's the deal. If they would have never left the land of Israel, they would have intermarried among the Canaanites, watered down that Jewish line, and not been able to bring about the Messiah. If Jacob has his own will, they never leave. If Isaac or Abram, they never leave. You know, if the, the patriarchs have their will, they never leave in a sense. But God is so sovereign over this that when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart, how did Joseph come out of this better and not bitter? His, his brothers were having a harder time with all the forgiveness he extended than what he extended. How is that? He had a big view of God and a small view of man. And even when things didn't work out according to his plan, he was okay. God is sovereign. So when we look at man's free will, I'd have to tell you that, no, man doesn't have this autonomous free will all across the board. He has responsibility. He has a will and responsibility within that. He has moral will. We'll talk more next week. 
Now, here's the awesome thing about all this. All that happened in Joseph's story here, right, is actually pointing where we're at today in this. Because God was sovereign over what happened with Joseph. The Israelites are saved. They go to Egypt. They multiply. And then they get so big and multiply that, that the Pharaoh, Pharaoh gets nervous and that thing do, things don't go well for them. And eventually they have to leave the promised land, right? You, don't, you only want to leave a place if it's bad. And then what happens after that? They get into the promised land. And then from one of the 12 brothers comes the tribe of Judah. And from the tribe of Judah comes our Messiah, our Savior. God's sovereignty brings about all the, brings about Jesus. This is why I, I want to tell you, don't exalt man's free will, this free will idea of man. Exalt God. Don't punt on your responsibilities. In your responsibilities, Know that God is leading and directing everything. All you have to do is what God has revealed in the scriptures to love him and enjoy him and serve him and glorify him and make much of his name. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a time of singing one of my favorite songs that just talks about the bigness of God. And then we're going to take communion. And here's why I love, and worship team, you can make your way up here. Here's why I love taking communion. Because what a great reminder it is for us about the sovereign God. Because when I read Joseph's story, I am reminded that all that happened to bring about, for me, the ability to even take communion today. Because when I take communion, I'm remembering a sovereign God who through his body and blood went to the cross and was crucified in my place for my sin. That's how heinous that this was all of that God brought Jesus at the right time in his sovereign will, in his sovereign decree, when you read all the Old Testament, it's not really moral stories just about you. It's really, it's a story about God. It's what God's doing and moving. And I love when we take communion here in just a moment. I want to sing about a big God. We're going to sing the song, Behold Our God. I love that song. Just beholding the sovereign God who's seated on his throne. It is exalted above the heavens. And that exalted God is what done everything in history he drove it towards the cross the apex of what he was doing so that you and i could have redemption the forgiveness of sins and on this side of glory now in christ guess what friends i doubt your free will is a as the you just get to autonomously walk about the board but i will tell you this in christ god has now freed you to obey him in the spirit you are free to obey him you were free to say yes to God and no to sin. In fact, you might be surprised that this next week when you're most struggling with sin, when you take communion today, it's a reminder to go, wait a minute, this communion is telling me I am dead to sin and alive to Christ. And why did that happen? Because the sovereign God made sure that happened. Where man tried to mess it up, God wasn't allowing that. His sovereignty cannot be thwarted. His power cannot be overcome. His wisdom cannot be computed. The sovereign cannot be tamed. And Aslan, he's not safe. Oh, brother, is he good? Would you stand with me? Thank you for a chance to sing about the greatness and bigness of you before your throne. We're okay with you kicking us off our throne. It wasn't a good place to sit anyways. Let us worship before you. Let our hearts look up.
Let us realize that you are the one leading and directing all things in this life. Help us. We are stressed and anxious and downcast at times. But no need. Let us get a big view of you today. In Jesus' name, amen.